Loot, swag, bungs, backhanders, whatever you want to call it, there's a lot of funny money about. Welcome to Filthy Lucre, the podcast which digs into all kinds of scams, hustles and scandals and looks at how big-time financial corruption thrives all around us. Filthy Lucre. I'm Richard Brooks, and over the last couple of decades, I've investigated all kinds of dodgy dealings. I want to introduce you to some of the most revealing stories from the world of big money and some of the people who have dragged them out of the shadows. In this episode, we're looking at one of the biggest financial and political scandals of the last few years, finance company Greensill. Like so many of the bigger ruses which have unravelled over the past decade or so, Greensill starts with a simple, convincing financial offer, but soon falls prey to overambition and hype. It costs investors billions and a former prime minister his reputation. The story was exposed by a number of journalists led by a team at the Financial Times, and I'm lucky enough to be talking to one of them, Cynthia Omerchu. Joining us in the studio to give some valuable context to this tricky story is Oxford University business historian Chris McKenna. I started by asking Cynthia what the Greensill story was all about. In each section, it's a huge scandal. In commodities, it's a big scandal. In supply chain mm. finance, lending, fintech, it's a big scandal. It's a huge political scandal involving the former prime minister of the UK, who himself had warned of the next big scandal being lobbying. But the fact that there's all these elements that come together make it a complicated story because it's woven like a, like a tress. At its simplest, Greensill Capital was a finance company, a lender. And its tagline was making finance fairer, which really came out of the experience of its founder, Lex Greensill. His family farmed melons and sugarcane in Australia, in Bundaberg. They sometimes faced financial hardship because when they sold their goods, they weren't being paid on time. So Greensill, when he set up his company, Greensill Capital, his idea, so company lore has it, was he wanted to make it easier for smaller suppliers to get paid. And so he got into this business of supply chain financing, which is really an age-old business. Say a little company might say, I'm selling something to a larger company and the larger company may take its time to pay them. And the little company might want to get paid fast and they're willing to take a little discount on the back of that. A lender like Greensill would step in and say they were paid the smaller supplier faster than would get paid by the bigger company when they're ready to pay. So essentially short term lending or working capital finance. Also, he did traditional factoring where the company would borrow money from a lender and then would provide invoices to the lender and the lender would then go to the individual people who owe the company money and bring that money in. The company itself wouldn't have to wait to get paid. But as you pointed out, this isn't really a new business. This is as old as international trading, isn't it? How did Lex get his big break? this guy from a farming family in Australia. Why could he form Greensill? He worked at Morgan Stanley in an area that dealt with supply chain finance. And he worked with Jeremy Haywood, who later became one of the most powerful civil servants in the whole country. 
they forged what appears to be a very good relationship. And, you know, sources have told us that it was kind of like nearly that uh, Jeremy Haywood was one of his mentors. Very soon, he was made an advisor to David Cameron, who at this point was the prime minister, and even had his own business mm. card. And he even had a desk in number 10, which was an extraordinary level of access. Greensill was struggling in terms of its revenue, in terms of its profits in the early days. But it's when General Atlantic came in, really, that became the turning point. And also the fact that Sanjeev Gupta, who was known as the saviour of steel Mm -hmm. here in the UK for coming in and buying up a lot of ailing steelworks across the country. He was one of the biggest clients and so brought in a huge amount of revenue for Greensill. It was the remarkable and quite fast increase in turnover that made a big impact here. The other aspect of it was that Greensill was really talking up its capabilities in using artificial intelligence to figure out the risk within these invoices and blend out the risk as much as possible. So it claimed it had this sort of special source that distinguished it from just the regular supply yes. chain. Yes, yeah. He's an incredible salesman as well, very persuasive. Chris, does this sound familiar to you, looking at the growth of businesses that have proved eventually to be less than they pretend they are? Yes, but particularly in... Um Factoring, it's interesting to think about the long history of that, which was the, very much tied to the growth of the uh, merchant banks in the 19th century who would go out and help various businesses by reconciling the money that they were going to pay people and the crops, for example, that were being sold or other kinds of dry merchants as they were known in the 19th century. So the long history of that was the emergence of what we think of city finance and general finance. It's also a story of more complicated relationships in finance where industrial companies can become profitable, not just based on the goods that they're selling, but on the way that they handle the financing itself. So most famously, this was the basis of Dell Computer. You'd order that computer. You would pay them right away with your credit card. This was back when you did this over the phone, and they took the money from your account immediately. And then they would only pay the components suppliers 90 days later, in which case they were getting the interest on that money throughout that period. And there was a funny period back in the late 20th century where you could actually get interest on your money. It used to be something you got back. Nowadays, you don't actually get interest on your money, or it's only happened recently, right? So there was a period when you'd get quite a lot if you just stuck money in the bank for 90 days, and that was worth it to you. So this model was actually one that various companies used to build up. And if you say, well, we can do this again, and that there'll actually be value in this, but also that they'll be will have special lending standards. People will be surprised, impressed, and invest in you because it's been a, a good strategy year after year. So how does a company convince financial backers that it's different, that it's special? Because, you know, there's any number of supply chain finance companies out there. It's routine business. How would a company like Greensill have shown that it was different? Well, what you did in the 19th century is what you do in the 21st century. Partly it's hiring a bunch of really smart people and good salespeople, and you're convincing. Partly is the story about your network. This would be the story of the Rothschilds moving all over the world or about any dynastic family that was in multiple countries. You understood the politics. You intermarried with the politicians. You were 
you were right on the face of it. You knew lots of people from elite institutions who were at the clubs. You were getting information from the coffee houses, whatever, right? So the very idea that Greensill's doing the same thing with the politicians, he's wired in, he knows what's going on, and at the same time he's saying, I'm innovating, I have special knowledge, I have ways of diversifying my risk both nationally and internationally and across various things. This is all very persuasive, and particularly yeah. if you're growing rapidly. I, I'm persuaded by this story. Sounds good so, to me, right? Well, there's, there's <laughs> quite an echo. Can we just talk about Jeremy Haywood for a moment? He's an interesting character because he was a career civil servant, really, who went on an extended secondment to Morgan Stanley. And it's while he's there that Lex Greensill gets to know him. So he comes under the wing of not just a banker, but you know a serious figure of power in Whitehall. If you go back to how the story came in to the FT, it was my colleague Rob Smith and Michael Poole, or Rob, a debt reporter at the time, who was following Greensill, had followed Greensill already. Michael Pooler, who was covering manufacturing, he came across Gupta. And, you know, people in the industry were all asking, so there's this guy coming in and buying up all the steelworks, but where is the money coming from? I got in via the political angle. The first thing I saw was that there were a myriad of meetings between Jeremy Haywood, meetings with John Manzoni, Matt Hancock, that were disclosed in the transparency register. Some of these meetings were badged regular catch-up. That really raised a lot of alarm bells. And I put in an FOI request and I don't still have an answer. They said, at the time when I asked the question, the Cabinet Office's email systems were not set up in order for them to be able to query what was discussed. Jeremy Haywood passed away. He is not here to defend himself or to bring his side of the story. But what we can see is certainly that there was an extraordinary level of access that Greensill got through his relationship with David Cameron and with Jeremy Haywood. And through that, they actually negotiated a deal with a part of government, didn't they? Yes, they had a project where they were going to pay pharmacy suppliers faster. It was the only project that actually directly went with the government, although others had been discussed. The pharmacies were ultimately paid by the government. So the idea was that Greensill would step in, pay the pharmacies a bit earlier. Yes. Effectively lending money to the government. Why would it make sense to have a third person or a third middleman, you know, to be involved rather than the government just paying their the pharmacies directly on time? This is really, in a way, covering up a business model that's shaky from the off. Its biggest client, as you said, is the Gupta Steel Group, which is in trouble. It's running steel mills and factories that are not necessarily financially viable. It's effectively lending them hundreds of millions of pounds. Yeah. I mean, it's a very symbiotic relationship between Greensill and the companies of GFG Alliance, which is the group of companies owned by Sanjeev Gupta and his family. Gupta's companies grew very fast as well. But as you say, they were in the business that goes from heights to lows. I mean, yeah. right now, steel prices are very high. 2020, they really had a lot of trouble because manufacturing practically came to a halt. And beyond that, it wouldn't even be an issue if it was a small amount that they invested. But Greensill was massively exposed to these companies yeah. up to around about $5 billion. Yeah. This should show up on companies' books, 
filed at company's house, we should be able to look at this and we should be able to question them. So why wasn't it apparent to everybody? Well, it's the accounting treatment of supply chain finance deals that's at the heart of this. We saw this with NMC Health, which is another company we investigated. It had 4.3 billion of undeclared debt. A lot of that, if people had actually done a Google, as we did, you know, was out there. In the accounts, it wouldn't have come up as debt. It would have come under the trade payable or account receivable side of the balance sheet. That's short-term lending that expects to clear fairly fast. On on the client's balance sheet. Yeah. So, for example, in the case of NMC, there would have been entries for trade payables. But the weight of all of this was not recognised. It just wasn't recognised. So, supply chain, when you're funding your business through supply chain finance, it doesn't really show up as debt as it should do. Not in the way that you would expect those levels of debt to show up. Chris, shouldn't the markets and analysts be able to work this out? Shouldn't they be able to say, look, there's a weakness in this accounting rule. It's concealing some debt. We're going to take a more realistic view. Absolutely. I mean, they can they can ask questions and should include that in their valuations. But the point that's made here about the fact that this stuff is everybody uses it. All of this is very short term. It's natural to take this small amount and discount it. And if it's going to be a kind of part of your business, you'd expect something like that to happen. The idea that steel, in effect, needed raw materials, was going to pass this through and was going to have to finance it briefly would be something that people would look at, but they might presume that it was absolutely fine. In fact, that it was good that they had a relationship with a fast-growing, reputable, connected lender who could help them in this way. So historically, this would be something you might say was very positive. The question is on really on two sides. One is, would other lenders lend to them? Or is it a good to, stock? To Greensill. To, to Greensill, yeah, because yeah. that's what we're saying, right? So would you be willing to give him money, possibly, because he seems to be able to find an outlet for it and do it consistently. And then should you buy the stock? Well, you're looking for the leverage itself, right? You're looking for the idea that he's doing this in a way that is non-traditional. He has connections to the politicians and also that he's using very sophisticated models and computers. You think, well, this is a new take on an old business, but he's been in it. He has the right training. He has a story from his background. I can see all the logic in this, except that I can also see how that turns terribly wrong rather quickly. With all this wonderful story, some of the basic due diligence doesn't seem to have been done. So Greensill had had a relationship with GAM Asset Management, the asset management company which was embroiled in a massive scandal in 2019, which held a lot of this debt that was linked to Greensill and its clients. Credit Suisse stepped into or extended the lending then from Greensill. And what what they did is they created what were known as supply chain finance funds. They lent to Greensill on the basis of all these clients that Greensill had, that in turn supplied invoices that were then bundled together into a security that was on these Credit Suisse supply chain finance funds. You as an investor, you buy the Credit Suisse supply chain finance fund in your portfolio and you go, well, that's very, very diversified because it, although it is all put in via Greensill, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of different clients underneath and a lot and lot and lot of different invoices that fuel yeah. all of this. On top of that, you've got insurance, which was provided 
by a company called Tokyo Marine to Greensill. So people thought, well, this is very safe. It's very diversified. You know, it's not going to go down. It's not going to be a problem. Credit Suisse had about 10 billion of Greensill linked notes. And Greensill itself was exposed to Sanjeev Gupta's company to the tune of about 5 billion. So you had investors in Credit Suisse who were essentially ultimately funding the likes of GFG Alliance companies. We realized that Grant Thornton had difficulty verifying some invoices. And we were being deliberately very careful how we reported that. Just before Easter 2021, we decided to go one step further because we had access to some invoices. There are very specific invoices with specific dollar amounts, with specific dates, specific clients on nickel trades. On the back of Credit Suisse annual reports, you had a section which laid out the obligors, i.e. the underlying clients of the Gupta companies that had been given invoices by the Gupta companies that were then packaged into Credit Suisse. I just went and I called as many as I could in the space of a morning or a day or so. And I asked them, well, you've done deals with Liberty Commodities, have you? That's a GFG. That's, a, that's yeah, that's his main commodities company. All the ones I was able to get in touch with said they had not done business with Liberty right. Commodities. Right. And I said, ever? Today? Yesterday? Last year? No, never. And the most tragicomical moment was one of the copper producers said to me, well, I don't know what I would have even trade with them. I don't buy nickel. I'm a copper producer. And that's when we realized the extent of what really may be going on here. GFG Alliance companies were selling steel or nickel or whatever mm. commodity they were selling to companies across the world. So they owed money to GFG Alliance companies. In steps Greensill and says to Gupta's companies, I will now pay you early all that you're owed by these people and then I will go back and these people will now owe me money. And it's all underpinned by the invoices that Gupta's companies give as a proof that these transactions happened. So in this case, the transactions didn't really exist. That seems to be the case. Okay, here's where it gets even more complicated. That's and, just what we need. <laughs> and, you know, here's where it gets really quite amazing. So when we wrote this article saying, look, are these invoices real? Sanjeev Gupta wrote a letter to the FT on the back of that. And he said that there was an arrangement between Greensill and his companies that they were going to be funding prospective receivables. Uh -huh. Now, there is such a thing as future receivables in that, you know, you could occasionally get extra borrowing on the back of this transaction that is about to happen with someone that you've got an established relationship that has a history of dealing with you on a regular basis. Now, prospective receivable is different. Prospective receivable is the idea that you would go out there and identify potential clients that would in the future potentially do business with you. It doesn't square when you've got invoices supposedly underpinning your lending. They're not prospective. If you write an invoice with a particular dollar amount at a particular date with a particular client, I don't see how that can be prospective. 
Right. So Gupta's defence to the allegation that these invoices weren't for real business was something quite different. Something quite different, yeah. yes. So I'm just wondering, Chris, this sounds like this sort of clever accounting, which is advantageous in one sense. It sort of works. It's legitimate to start with. It can trip into deception and certainly exaggeration of a company's business and fortunes. And it's beginning to sound like it has echoes of the big scams like Enron, for example. Yeah, obviously you can see in this various other patterns like that. One is that Enron, for example, was breaking apart businesses and then kind of reassembling them and arguing that it was more valuable to be a trader than to actually own the business, having been a gas pipeline business. They said, I don't really, I don't want to own these pieces of a business. It's better to be just assembling them and charging prices to everybody. And we've got a really smart group of people who've got connections who can do this all around the world. This comes out of sort of an interesting view of the British economy long term. The question is, do you want to be vertically integrated where you do all of this, where you actually make the extract the copper and the nickel and produce it all the way, in which case factoring, you only owe yourself all the way through, right? You're presumably um, reducing the transaction costs. Or do you want to be very segmented in the markets and do these specialized things, which will then involve things like this kind of finance? And what the modern economy has generally tended towards is not doing all the stages of production, but actually to do it much, much smaller all the time. And then this leads to the kind of rise of these very specialized financial institutions that are then, it's very, it is very complicated for the accountants to work out who actually has anything in their possession at any one time. So, you know, we see this really positively in the Toyota model of production where they don't keep anything with them. And we look kind of downward at the Fordist model in which they did everything from producing the rubber themselves to actually trying to, to make every part of the car. Greensill, it seems as though he's part of this breakup of the corporation and the reassembly, which then makes it very hard for accountants to figure out what all the pieces together add up to in the end. Yeah. The auditing company was a very small company, King & King, which is now being investigated by the regulatory body. It's very small, one or two partner firm, had audited billions worth of GFG companies. But because it's not one company, it's a large number of different individual companies. King & King suggested that they weren't quite aware of how these all interlinked. This is the thing with business fragmentation. If you break up a whole business process into different parts, including financial parts, in quite a complicated way, each bit can measure its own value, its own profit in isolation. So the sum of the parts is much greater than the whole. Well, that's what they would argue, right? They might not actually be worth that much if you reassembled it. You'd think, well, that isn't possible that all of that profit can come from this entity. It doesn't make any sense versus one that's integrated. But each one of them is saying, look at us, not just within this industry, but in comparison to somebody else. And you get pressure to further break apart and to specialize and to say, well, I'm worth more than what you might have thought because I'm pursuing this line. Yeah. And so this is traditionally, historically now for the past 25 years, been the way that you create value in the marketplace, but also something that comes apart when it appears that there is some sort of fraud or some sort of problems. Yeah. When you go back and try to reassemble it, it doesn't look anything yeah. like what you thought. You say when, it's, when there's some sort of fraud, is it inherently more susceptible to fiddling 
deception, manipulation. It's clear that fraud appears in new industries. So people tend to value them and they tend to manipulate it. It also tends to come in at the interstices, the places where things come together between business and politics, and also across regulatory regimes when you have multiple regulations that are cross-cutting and you can claim that you're operating in one place versus another. This is a regular pattern in traditional mainline organizations that are in businesses that we know well where there isn't much change. It's much harder because then the fraud itself becomes comparable. You can look at other organizations, but when each organization gets to say, there's nothing like us, this is how we measure our profits, this is how you should judge us, and these are the connections and opportunities that we have that no one else has, you kind of have to believe them, and particularly if you're a small or even medium-sized accounting organization, you don't have the capacity to see the scale across. When we looked at the relationships between the various companies within this GFG Alliance system, we got access to a receivables spreadsheet of Liberty Commodities. And we looked at each individual company and how it related to GFG. A lot of them were ostensibly absolutely separate companies owned by totally different shareholders. But we realized that probably about up to 75% of the receivables were due from companies, either GFG-related companies themselves or companies where the directors and shareholders had very close ties to Sanjeev Gupta and Liberty. Okay, so it's tricky for the bean counters, for these small accountancy firms to work out what's going on when there's all these intercompany transactions. What about the regulators? Where have they been? Shouldn't they have been a bit more capable? Certainly, they should have asked more questions. They should have been more decisive in their actions. There was big, huge warning signs for a long time. But can we point out that we just had a very complicated discussion of exactly how this was different Mm. from the traditional market? It is complicated and difficult. And you can imagine even the regulators trying to say, well, this is what the original market looks like, and we're used to factoring. And now we've got this other market, which looks very similar and operates in the same way, but we have other dynamisms in it. And look, it's got the support of the government because they want to see things more efficient. And here's somebody who has this interesting background and knows various people. Do we really want to be heavy-handed about this? I can see the argument which says regulation has to be more flexible in emerging markets and we want to be dynamic and we don't want to just, particularly in fintech, we're trying to say to people, you know, you should move forward new kinds of payment methods and new kinds of efficiencies. We don't want to be so traditional. We're going to squeeze you out. So I'm all with you about the problems with regulation, but a lot of this is in trying to re name it something else, we get a little afraid that maybe we're going to crush it before it gets going. I think also the questions around liberty commodities. For years, there's a number of banks that have raised very large red flags. And some of that was kept very close to the chest in that they might have had problems with liberty and then just stopped trading relationships or got out of the way. And then another bank would take over and they might experience similar problems. But I think there were sufficient red flags. And because everybody was trying to shield themselves, that's my opinion, they didn't want to be known that they had problems. They might not have then passed the warning on. In some cases, they did. But I think the red flag waving wasn't enough. There were so many red flags in relation to Gupta's companies with banks seizing trading relationships for a long period of time. 
And the fact that Greensill was so exposed to those companies yeah. should have raised red flags yeah. over Greensill. Do you think that the fact that Greensill carried on, you know, for quite a long time was connected to Lex Greensill's schmoozing of those in power? Possibly. <laughs> I mean, likely. The FT, credit to my two colleagues, early on, they pointed out red flags. At the time when David Cameron was lobbying for Greensill, a lot of these articles had come out. Behind the scenes, already, the insurer of Greensill was starting to pull out. There'd been the flag around GAM asset management. There was a lot, a lot of questions raised, but yet the lobbying was really off the charts. Yes, it did have a huge impact, I would argue. Where are these companies now? Greensill's gone bust. Greensill's in administration. You know, what triggered Greensill's downfall? On one hand, you had Gupta's companies, uh, the biggest client of Greensill, was running into financial trouble. Then you had the insurer, which was a Japanese company called Tokyo Marine, which was indicating that it wasn't going to renew its insurance policy over Greensill and the money that it was lending, which was really the cornerstone of the business model because that allowed companies like Credit Suisse to set up supply chain finance fund because it minimised the risk. There was questions in Germany where Greensill had a bank called Greensill Bank and where the local regulator there, Bafin, was already raising serious questions about its relationship with Gupta or GFG Alliance companies. The last straw came when the insurance was revoked and Greensill, despite its many, many efforts to find someone else who would insure it, couldn't find an insurer. And then Credit Suisse froze the supply chain financing funds and that was the end of it. So it's the people who are on the hook for the money who finally had a close look and yes. said, we don't like this too much. Chris, is that kind of typical of the downfall of these almost financial pyramids? How do they normally come to their sticky ends? It's a combination of people often who are competing who start raising issues because they notice that this person is doing something that they can't actually do themselves. So they start raising questions and say, I don't know how they actually can make money at this. And they're doing this with the clients who bring them to options. And they'll say, I I can't match that offer and I can't work out how somebody else could make that offer. But the other side is exactly what you described, which is insurance. So insurance, we I don't think we spend enough time, actually. It's such a, I'm going to be rude, it's, it's kind of boring to talk about insurance. And I think in turn that we think that, therefore, we just can't talk about it. We can't understand it. But I think insurers are constantly probing, constantly asking questions. And I think, for example, it was AIG that really prompted the 2008 meltdown when we realized that AIG was in trouble and AIG was, in fact, calling for help. That's when we realized the depth of what was going on and we realized we couldn't really That's save That's a huge it. American insurance company. And it was actually their London office. It was doing things that was outside the U.S. Yeah. and was, again, using these interstices to operate. That was part of the problem. This is common when you see something overseas where if they're going to lose money, they're going to pull back rather quickly and move away from it. So both, I think you're right about the sort of the catch on in the by the commercial clients about what's going on, but also the sense from the insurers that when you see something wrong in insurance, then, you know, something's terribly wrong. We should be, I think, in general, it's a good way to kind of sniff out these problems and it's been the problem again and again and again. A hundred years ago, this was the problem in life insurance in New York when it became regulated in a famous regulator's case called the Armstrong Commission, which changed the whole structure of Wall Street 
in the early 20th century, that was based on the insurance companies and perceived problems within it. So insurance is a really interesting common linkage across a lot of these problems. Maybe people just aren't sceptical enough when they see particularly financial businesses making huge profits in a supposedly novel way. There was a telling remark from your colleague, Robert Smith, Lex Greensill was flying around the world in a Gulfstream private jet. And the boss of another supply chain finance company told Robert that he flies EasyJet. Yes, that's right. Ryanair it was. Oh, Ryanair was it? Oh, God. Oh, it's worse. (laughs) (laughs) So that's the nature of supply chain finance. It's not really a glitzy business. It's not a high margin business. business. Yeah, it's not high margin. It's not glitzy, but it became glitzy, very glitzy with private jets. Maybe we're just not cynical enough. Yeah, but you also have this proposition, you know, there's someone is going to be making finance fairer, it's going to be easy, it's going to be tackling a problem that a lot of small companies are having to deal with when they don't get paid by the larger companies. What's not to like? Well, exactly. So there's that sort of snake oil as well. There are all these winsome features of it that are going to give it an easier ride. And maybe that's why people suspend their cynicism. So what can we expect now in the Green Seal saga? Right now, we're in a whole number of regulatory investigations across multiple jurisdictions. There's criminal investigations. Uh, Germany has a case against the Green Seal Bank. In France, there are cases. And of course, here in the UK, we've got the Serious Fraud Office, which is reviewing the GFG Alliance companies in the context of what happened with Green Seal. When and how that is going to get solved, resolved, when can we draw a line under it, that is a big question. There's a whole bunch of investigations and we just don't know how long it's going to take, but it's not going to be fast. And that's it for this episode of Filthy Luca. Thanks to Cynthia O'Murchu of the Financial Times and Chris McKenna of Oxford University for their fascinating insights into the Greensill story. Next time, we'll be on drugs, specifically the laundering of the spoils of narcotics dealing by Britain's biggest bank, HSBC. I'll be talking to Chris Blackhurst, author of an explosive new book on the scandal, Too Big to Jail. Thanks for listening to Filthy Luca. If you enjoyed this episode, then do feel free to share it and give it a plug wherever you get your podcasts.